Welcome to Boar Barigmi, Food for Thought. My name is Vamsi Reddy, and I'm here with my co-host, Akul Munjal. We're excited for you to join us as we take a deep dive into the contemporary topics of medicine, philosophy, psychology, ethics, and so much more. This is Akul Munjal. Before we get started, I just wanted to mention that we are medical students and none of the opinions expressed on this podcast reflect any organization or institution. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back, everyone, to Borborygmy. This week, we have the privilege of being joined by Dr. Cargill Allen. So I actually was very fortunate to meet Dr. Allen very early in my undergraduate education. And so I've known Dr. Allen for the past six years, and he's been an incredible mentor and a guide through the field of neurosurgery and it just it, the way he conducts his life. So thank you for joining us today, Dr. Allen. You're very welcome. Glad to be here. So just to start off, could you please introduce yourself and what was your path to medicine and specifically your path to neurosurgery? Sure. So, uh, yeah, uh, as you mentioned, um, I'm uh, Cargill Allen and uh, I'm a board certified neurosurgeon. Um, and uh, I'm originally from uh, Guyana in South America, so um, uh, I'm an immigrant to this country. And I guess growing up, I um, never really thought of doing medicine as, as, a, as a first choice. I mean, my, my dad was an economist, my mother was a teacher. Um, I knew I wasn't going to do a desk job because my perception as a teenager was my dad sitting at a desk all day and it just seemed incredibly boring. Of course, now I realize it wasn't, but you know, from, from, a, from a teenager or a child's perspective, uh, it, it just seemed like uh, there was not a lot going on. So, um, and then in school, I, I had a pension for the sciences, uh, realized that um, I was going to do something scientific, although I truly did love the arts as well. I did music, I played the piano and the viola um, in the high school orchestra. But, uh, but in high school, um, I realized that I really loved chemistry. And so when I went to college, I decided to major in uh, chemistry and math. And my thought was um, to do graduate chemistry. But I remember the day I had an epiphany in the chemistry lab. We were, uh, I think there were three of us left behind um, uh, trying to get an experiment to work. And although, you know, it was challenging working on the individual experiments, I looked around and realized that I really want to spend the rest of my life tinkering with test tubes <laughs> forever. So that was when I decided that there, there, there might be a, uh, another career path for me. And um, I always had the greatest respect for my you know, family physician. And I realized that medicine uh, had what I was looking for. It had a, a good amount of science, but it also had the human touch as well, which I thought would be lacking if I were a strict chemist you know, in a lab. And so I decided to apply to medical school and was fortunate enough to, um, uh, to be admitted to Yale. And as a, a medical student, really loved working with my hands, uh, loved being, you know, digging in the cadavers and uh, getting down into intricate uh, anatomy of the various parts of the body. Um, and again, the, 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 the neurosciences just kind of appealed to me right away. Um, but I remember distinctly my first clinical rotation was actually internal medicine. And uh, I loved it. I mean, I was one of those persons that was just uh, very intrigued by the, you know, the differential diagnosis and playing detective to come up with the, you know, the correct diagnosis. Um, 
So I flirted for a brief moment with, you know, just internal medicine. But the one thing that got me was that I realized we would do a lot of talking and talking. And in fact, at the end of uh, a day, see at 5 p.m. end of the day, uh, I reflected on my day and I realized we haven't really done a whole lot. <laughs> so we, we talked a lot. It was interesting. I mean, don't get me wrong. It, it was very, very stimulating intellectually. But uh, I, I didn't feel like we were actually helping patients as much as I wanted. So in contrast to that, my next rotation was actually general surgery. So I had a very uh, a good glimpse of a very you know, proximate contrast between the two uh, specialties. And with general surgery, uh, I realized I was getting home at 8 or 9 or 10 or even 11 o'clock at night and feeling in, invigorated. Uh, so medicine was, was stimulating intellectually, but uh, I, I just felt mentally exhausted at the end of the day. Uh, and realized that um, yeah, there was not that immediate effect of, of helping patients. So uh, after those two rotations, I knew it was going to be some type of surgeon. And then it was just a matter of narrowing it down. Um, and at Yale at the time, we had the choice of doing three subspecialty, um, surgery, three, uh, surgical subspecialties out of a choice of nine. And so my three were plastic surgery, ENT, and neurosurgery. And neurosurgery just one hands down. You know, it's a, it was a perfect marriage of neurology and surgery. And so, uh, you know, scrubbing in on the cases, uh, that's when you really know it, is actually when you're in the operating room, um, you know, working on a case with the attending or resident. That's when it clicks, when you realize, you know, this is for me. Uh, and I think for most people who end up going into neurosurgery, there is that, uh, in that introspection, that moment when you realize that, you know, this is my specialty. So that's how it occurred in my case, kind of a gradual stepwise progression to the choice of neurosurgery. So um, there was a lot that you, you just said that resonated a lot with Bobsy and I, when you mentioned how in internal medicine, it was very intellectually fulfilling, but <laughs> it's a lot of talking. Uh, I think that really is one of the things that drove us more towards uh, surgical fields. And then when also when you mentioned that when you are in general surgery, you felt invigorated at the end of a long day. That also kind of resonated with the two of us. Um, but like for me, I remember when I was on orthopedics, one of the first things I got to help out with was a femoral fracture. And that's kind of, that was kind of my moment when I was like, this is a lot of fun and I really enjoy this. And this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. Did you have a specific, like you kind of alluded to the fact that you had a moment, like can you describe that a little bit further? Yeah, so I don't remember a specific case, but I remember a series of cases. So on the rotation, um, you know, just you know, doing a burr hole for, for a chronic subdural hematoma, which is a relatively straightforward case as neurosurgical cases go. But, you know, the, the, the senior resident, the resident, you know, allowed me to use the drill, you know, make the, the burr hole, and just getting that gush of uh, subdural fluid coming out. I mean, there's something very gratifying about knowing that, you know, you're actually uh, treating a patient and you can, you can actually tell the moment when that patient's pressure is relieved. So, so you know you've actually done something very concrete and then seeing them on rounds the next day and having them go from, you know, tunded or, or you know, almost comatose to, to being awake. So there, there, there's, a, there's a very uh, satisfying feeling to the core knowing that you're a part of that process. Um, other cases that did it for me uh, were, you know, taking out a, a member of a meningioma, for instance, and just uh, 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 working between the plane of the tumor and the, and the brain and, and uh, you know, uh, talking about the anatomy of the brain at that time. 
and then uh, also witnessed an aneurysm case uh, where we were at the base of the brain just exploring the, the circular willis and just exploring the different uh, branches of the internal carotid. And so it, it's, it's a very, um, it was a good way to, to bring the, uh, the love I had for anatomy uh, together with the intellectual um, uh, fascination with you know, how the brain works. And so, uh, so those series of cases, I think, did it for me um, and sold me on neurosurgery. Uh, before I let Bobsy get to the next question, I think that it's very interesting how you mentioned the drill, because the drill is just what gets people. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because um, there are a lot of people who actually are, are interested in neurosciences or, or even neurosurgery, but, uh, you know, the, 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 the act of using a drill in someone's head sometimes turns people off. And so, you know, if you're a little bit squeamish, you're probably not going to do surgery at all. You know, if, if you can't stand for long hours, you know, six hours at a time uh, without a pee break, you know, there, there's some self-selection there. You know, if you, if you can't stay up all night without uh, with very little sleep and still function, um, uh, even though you may intellectually like the feel or want to go into it. So there are some physical constraints as well that also kind of lead you to, to your choices. Um, and uh, yeah, so. <laughs> I completely agree. And especially when you were talking about self-selection, I think that's very pertinent, especially now that I'm going uh, or trying to apply to the field of neurosurgery, just seeing the kind of applicants that apply. It's very obvious to see like the, how mentally stimulated and people who are very much go-getter personalities are usually the ones that are applying to the field. And speaking of that go-getter personality, have you read the book Grit by Angela Duckworth by any chance? I haven't read the book, but I did, I did see the podcast recently. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I was aware of that thinking or philosophy before actually knowing her name. Um, and uh, I completely agree with it. Yeah, exactly. And for our listeners, um, the central thesis of grit is that grit is the ability to persevere or to do difficult things. And out of, out of all the fields in medicine, I feel like neurosurgery probably requires some of the most grit, given the hours of um, the length of residency, the hours that you have to work, not just as a resident, but as, as was an attending, and then also additional academic obligations on top of that. Do you agree with this sentiment? And then also, like, how do you think people can improve their grit? Yeah. So, so I do agree with it. And in fact, um, even at a, a more unconscious level as, as neurosurgeons, and specifically as program directors, because I've been a program director, I was a program director for almost 20 years, 15 years at MCG and another four and a half years as assistant program director at the University of Rochester. And so we had the task of basically reviewing, you know, hundreds of applications and narrowing it down very frequently to one person. So it's a very competitive specialty, as you know. But very often, I, I think, consciously or subconsciously, I was always more impressed with someone who was able to overcome a lot of obstacles in their path to applying to neurosurgery. So, for instance, um, I remember one applicant who um, you know, was a good student, but during college, uh, a, a, a very uh, important family member got sick, and they weren't of wealthy means, so that, that person had to basically take some time off, take care of their family member, uh, get a job, because that was the, the, the primary breadwinner. Uh, but despite all those obstacles, still made it through college, made it to med school, and applied to neurosurgery. Another example was um, uh, uh, one applicant who um, you know, had to work in their family's business in the shop, basically to, to help earn his keep and to get him, you know, uh, 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 enough finances to, to get through school. Uh, a third one was an immigrant who 
basically came from very humble upbringings, was a dishwasher in New York, well, you know, washing dishes when they first came to this country, and then just kind of kept working hard, got good grades, and, and then made it. So those, those are applicants that you know that are probably going to do well when they're throwing the curveballs in your surgery. Um, you know, seven years is a long time, and it's much more important, I think, because uh, everyone, everyone's intelligent, everyone you know, has the academic, academic credentials to get to that stage. But I think the thing that will separate the, the stellar uh, uh, resident from the average one is someone who can persevere and, and keep that fire going uh, throughout that seven years of residency. Um, so that's something that, we, that I personally always look for. And, um, and I think it's essential to kind of, uh, not just surviving in your surgery, but, but, but flourishing. You know, in terms of um, in terms of what uh, uh, you know, what you can do, it, it, it's really so. I, I don't know. If, I mean, you're probably familiar with Malcolm Gladwell, but I remember hearing one of his his podcasts, and he mentioned that uh, uh, just was a talent is really overrated. So he gave the example of um, he's um, an immigrant from Jamaica, uh, in Canada for his uh, uh, teenage years, and um, track and field was always big in Jamaica. So uh, at a certain point, uh, there were a group of them that were trained intensively uh, for track and field. And in fact, they got to a point where they were a pretty, pretty high uh, a level. And one day, the coach said, okay, the next step is for you guys to actually run up this hill backwards. And one of his classmates actually um, uh, is a well-known, actually an Olympic star. So he actually you know, was able to do that. And at that stage, Rotten got himself, no, I'm not going to run up a hill backwards. I, I just don't want to do that. It's just too hard. You know, why, why do it? And so he kind of, you know, obviously went different routes. So a lot of times it's just persistence in doing the hard things to get you where you want to go. So you actually have to have that goal in mind. If, if that's not a goal that you're really passionate about, um, you know, it's harder for you to get there. And so it has to come from within. So um, uh, there was one writer called Dweck that I think had, encapsulated you know the things that you need to get you know to to, to kind of um, uh, uh, generate to, to really um, build grit and one is to embrace challenges and you know with respect to neurosurgery you, you've got to you've got to realize that you're going to be a situation where you're doing procedures or techniques that are slightly above your level of aptitude but that's the only way to learn um, so I'll give you an example of, uh, uh, and this is just a generic resident, but they're probably a composite of several. Um, one resident who, for instance, is uh, very smart, but a little bit timid, is, is just deathly afraid of, of, of doing the procedure. So if the attending says, okay, you, you saw me do it, go ahead and do it. If they're paralyzed by fear, fear of e either not fulfilling the attending's expectations, um, you have to have some fear of hurting the patient. Otherwise, you know, you're, you're a psycho. So you've, you've got to have that. But you can't have that fear paralyze you to the point where you can't do the procedure to get better. So you could have one resident who literally shrinks back, you know, or, or you know, when it's offered to go to the next step, they kind of say, no, you do it. They're not going to get as far as the resident who actually gladly you know, rises to that challenge. So the next... Uh, 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 thing is, you know, persisting in the face of setbacks. We're all going to have complications. You've got to be able to process that complication 
and then move on. If you become paralyzed by your mistakes, uh, you'll never be the best neurosurgeon you can be. So, or, or in, in any field for that matter. Um, uh, you know, the third point that, that Wick uh, mentioned is, is just seeing the journey as, as a, a means to an end. These, all these, you know, all the hard work is the goal of becoming a master. And, um, and, and, and so, you know, having that long-term view helps you to kind of get through the day-to-day the -day grind uh, to get to that point. Um, the fourth point is just learning from criticism. So recognizing that you don't know it all at that stage and trying to incorporate the uh, advice of um, as many mentors as possible uh, helps you to, uh, uh, you know, to become the best person that you can be. And, and, that, and that's the beauty, beauty of residency. You have several different mentors. Um, you know, I remember uh, when I was in training, we would have some attendings that were very particular about doing it their way. So you do it their way in the operating room. When you get to another case with another attending, they have a completely different way of doing it. And so you would learn their way. But the goal is to kind of learn uh, the different ways of, of doing the same thing and then kind of making a, getting an amalgam of all those uh, mentors to come up with their own way. And then, you know, uh, the, the last thing is just kind of finding, um, finding lessons in, 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 in the uh, successes of some of your mentors. And by the way, I should say failures as well. One point I used to make to the residents in the operating room, if a case went spectacularly well, you know, completely uneventful, that's excellent for the patient, but it's actually not good for learning. <laughs> so um, I would tell, and actually I recognize this as a resident myself, I would always ask the attending, what would you do if this went wrong or that went wrong? So even though it could be the simplest of cases, I recognize that, if I knew exactly what to do when this disaster happened, then when it actually happened to me, if and when it happened to me, it wasn't the first time I've seen it. You know, I've already processed it by someone telling me exactly what to do, what they had done. So I'm indirectly learning from my professor's mistakes without actually seeing it happen. I mean, obviously you'll see some happening before your eyes, but uh, even for the, the most benign case or the most, um, uh, you know, a safe case. There's always something that can go wrong. And so if you know at the back of your mind the, the long list of things that can happen and has happened in the past, then, you know, God forbid, if it's happened to you, uh, then at least you, you know what to do. And, and, and you've, you've got that, 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 uh, uh, that, you know, that road uh, map ahead of you to, to how to, to handle the situation. So those are just some kind of ideas on how to um, you know, how to build that resilience and, and grit as you kind of complete the seven years of, of residency. Uh, so one of the things you mentioned is in order to build grit and build competence, you kind of have to always be doing stuff that's a little bit out of your reach. So what do you think the line is between a little bit out of your reach and a good learning experience versus completely out of your reach and you probably shouldn't do? Yeah, yeah. So that's where judgment comes in and unfortunately when you're just starting out it's hard to uh, that's not something that you that you necessarily have right away because you haven't really seen the breadth of neurosurgical cases so you don't really know what theoretically can go wrong so that's where you have to depend very heavily on your mentors because the good mentor will not let you veer too far afield so for instance 
if someone tells you to kind of, uh, you know, start opening the craniotomy and, and, you, and you're going and so the mentor will, will know, well, he's struggling, but there's really nothing that he can mess up right now. You know, it's, 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 it's a superficial part. So, so the mentor, a good mentor will, will hopefully give you tips on how to correct your mistake. And that way you can go a little bit further as opposed to, um, you know, in the old days, we were left a lot to our own devices, <laughs> for, for good or bad. So, so I think a lot of us may have picked up bad habits because there was no attending and you would just be doing your case. Um, that's not necessarily the best way to, to learn. <laughs> so, so I think, um, you know, a lot of it is the judgment on, 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 on how far to go. Also, you've got to leave your ego out of it. Um, I remember when I was a, a resident, we had a visiting medical student from another institution and um, uh, they were putting in an EVD, just a, a catheter into the a brain to decompress the fluid. And it became apparent to me after the third try that it became more about that medical student not getting the procedure. So he was visibly getting more and more flustered and, and you could see him kind of getting more anxious. And it was almost like this, this block, forgetting that it was a patient <laughs> that he was actually dealing with. And just, you know, it's like, I got to get it. I got to get it. So finally I have to say, that's okay. Step away from the table. Because I was literally afraid he was going to cause a big hemorrhage. Because, you know, you can only pass the catheter so many times before you cause some damage. So, um, so that, that's where kind of insight and, 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 and judgment comes in. If, if, if there's some, some procedure or some technique that you're just not quite getting, that's okay. Just ask someone for advice or, or, or you know, maybe come at it a different way. But don't keep doing the same thing over and over. I mean, that's the definition of madness. So. Of course. And actually going off of that, so we were talking about like passing an EBD and these kind of procedures, which for a neurosurgeon is something that you do hundreds of times during residency. So I recently read a story in which a neurosurgery resident placed an EBD and inadvertently went through an AVM, which was an arteriovenous malformation for listeners within the patient's cerebral cortex. And unfortunately, as much as they tried, so it was the junior resident and the senior resident was in the room, not scrubbed in. So then the senior resident scrubbed in, once the patient starts bleeding and they try to fix it, but the patient continues to bleed and they called the attending, the attending scrubs in, but they still can't control the bleeding. And unfortunately, as much as they tried, they were unable to save the patient. In medicine, we make these mistakes and sometimes these mistakes have significant consequences, especially because we're dealing with lives. Could you share an experience that you've had personally with some or one that you've witnessed which relates to this and how you dealt with it sure yeah so yeah like you said these mistakes will happen um hopefully as as you gain more experience and um and, and insight your technique improves and your and so does your judgment um but i remember as a junior resident literally a pgy2 i was doing a, a actually turned up it was a ruptured aneurysm with one of my attendings and um it was the opening part. So we had uh, opened the scalp, uh, we had removed uh, the bone flap, and we were drilling the uh, lesser wing of the stenum. That's a portion of the bone at the side of the head, uh, which is kind of pyramidal in shape as you go uh, deeper. And uh, it's important to get that as flat as possible so when you're opening up the lining of the brain, the dura, you have a relatively straight trajectory. You're not looking around the corner of the bone. And so we were using the, and actually the attending, uh, uh, handed the uh, the um, uh, to actually take off the, the pieces of bone, 
And you know, it was my first time doing it. And so for me, it was just a complete lack of knowledge to, of, of, of gauging how much bone you bite at the time. So in biting the bone, I think it, may, it might have been the second bite, the, it was a, a too big a bite, and so there was a, a kind of a, a crack. And um, we looked at each other, and I realized, and he realized too, that something was wrong because the blood pressure started to, to go sky high. So at that point, we knew that the aneurysm had re-ruptured. And that's always a, a very critical part of, of uh, accessing an aneurysm. So, you know, we quickly opened up the dura, the brain was radiating out. We actually ended up doing a frontal, a partial frontal lobectomy just to get down to the, uh, to the aneurysm. Uh, uh, needless to say, it was a flail. We got the aneurysm secured, but because of that re-rupture and the intense uh, uh, swelling, the patient didn't have a good outcome at all. In fact, the patient ended up dying, you know, several days later. And I felt horrible. And um, so, you know, the, the first thing to realize is that these mistakes do happen and you've got to allow yourself to grieve. Um, you know, grieving was, was good enough for Harvey Cushing. I don't know if you know the famous story of, um, uh, he had operated on General Wood, uh, a very famous politician um, uh, in 1910. Um, and he successfully removed a big parasite from the The first time it had ever been done. And he was in you know, cloud nine. Well, he left a little bit, and that meningioma recurred. And over the next two or three decades, uh, General Wood ended up having a limp. And so he finally came back to Harvey Cushing in 1927, and the tumor had grown back, and he operated again. Um, but there was a small bleeder that he failed to coagulate at the end of the case. So General Wood woke up perfectly fine, but then was dead within a few hours from a, from a massive hemorrhage. And Harvey Cushing was devastated. Uh, by all reports, he actually did not operate for several weeks after that. He just couldn't bring himself to do another case. But uh, but then he finally got around to you know doing his job. I mean, this guy was the best in the field at the time. Obviously, the first you know the the, the father of, of modern neurosurgery. But um, the point is that you will make make mistakes. Uh, you've got you've to gotta be able to grieve, just like a normal grieving process. Uh, you know, you feel bad, you talk to the family. But then after that, the next step is to go back over what happened. It's not to forget it. You know, a lot of people say, oh, yeah, you forget, forget it, move on, jump on the horse again. Well, you no, know, you don't want to do that. You want to actually go over that mistake in excruciating detail to figure out if there was something that you could have done differently. And, um, you know, in my case, I realized that, uh, and, and to this day, you know, you still use the longure, but what I do is a technique of actually using the drill to thin out the, the sphenoid so that when I'm taking a bite, it's a much thinner piece. So I actually hollow out that pyramidal piece of bone in the, in the sphenoid wing uh, to make subsequent bites much smaller. So that was a technique, you know, I developed, uh, I mean, other people do it too, but I've never had another case of that. So you, you want to make the one bad mistake one <laughs> so you move on from it but you figure out what you could do differently and in some cases um, it's a mistake that happens a lot but no one's really thought about it constructively and um, you can actually come up with uh, with a new way a new paradigm for addressing that problem and uh, getting it out in the literature so that's that's the other thing to think about how you can advance the field and so you know a lot of my papers were just born of things that you know, I did wrong or things that as a, as a, as a, 
as a specialty we, we did because that was the way we did it. But um, if you think of, you know, there may be a better way to do it, then I think you'll be doing the field of service um, as you approach each patient. So one of the things you said was that uh, the Cushing surgery happened in 1977? No, no, 1910. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I'm sorry. I thought you said 1977, and I was like, wow, like meningioma resections are so like commonplace. <laughs> right. No, no, the first surgery was done in 1910, and then uh, 1927 was the, the second surgery for the, um, for the recurrence, and that's when General Wood died. And he was a prominent figure, so of course, you know, uh, Harvey Cushing felt, felt terrible, but, um, but you know, uh, it, it was one of those things that um, uh, what Cushing did um, was he progressively uh, reduced the mortality rate in neurosurgery by being very fastidious. He would study his cases beforehand. He would draw uh, illustrations afterwards. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, he actually would record his, his data. Um, and in fact, the, the funny story is that he, uh, he had a little black book. He wrote all the, all the uh, complications in and, and, and data. And uh, at one point, um, uh, Louisa Eisenhart, one of his uh, co-workers, who actually ended up being uh, a very famous neuropathologist and the first editor of the journal neurosurgery, she actually would hide the book from him because <laughs> she was afraid he would fudge the data in some way. So at, at his retirement party uh, in the 70s, she presented this little black book to him because he would always be searching for it to see where she had hidden it. But uh, he progressively got the mortality rate uh, for neurosurgery down, except for one tiny blip when uh, he collaborated with Professor Bovee uh, uh, to device the electric artery. And so he was so excited by this new uh, device that would actually help um, uh, uh, stop bleeders in the operating room that he brought back a lot of his old patients that he had boarded the case because, you know, they were, it was a terribly bloody case, uh, thinking that, well, I can get this done with the bovie. Of course, some of those cases he probably should never brought back. So his mortality rate went up a bit, but then continued to progress throughout his uh, career. So, I mean, even though this happened in 1910 and 1927, that's still not, historically, that's not that long ago. So I would think that neurosurgery probably has changed very significantly since you started practicing. That, that's correct. So then how do you feel like uh, people and yourself should constantly uh, adapt to the changing atmosphere? Yeah, it's, it's actually something that you have to force yourself to do. Um, a lot of neurosurgeons have a hard time with changing the way they practice because it's worked for them. And, and uh, you know, uh, but, but I think I had a good, uh, one, of, one of my mentors was constantly innovating and um, not afraid to try new techniques, new ways of doing things. And so, uh, uh, you know, as a program director, I'd always uh, encourage the residents to think outside of the box. You know, I'd say, well, this is the way we do it. This, this is the best way. But uh, recognize that the field is changing and you could be part of that change if you can come up with a new, a new way of doing it. So one of, my, one of my things was basically encouraging them to come up with a new uh, patent or, or, or a new idea that could be potentially patentable uh, that they can call their own. And so if, if, you, if you approach the field in that way uh, as, as being part of you know, uh, being a part of the instrument of change, it makes it so much more fulfilling and exciting. Um, 
so you know you've got to keep up with the literature keep reading because you know people are always doing new things and you know some of those things are just gimmicks frankly they don't necessarily change the outcome or or, or uh, are not necessarily the better way of doing it but um, but there are a lot of different uh, uh, ideas out there and so if you're not afraid to to try something different then I think uh, I think that that serves you and the field better it's hard to do I mean um, one of the uh, one of the neuroscientists at Stanford Sapolsky um, I remember hearing a lecture from him at the SNS decades ago where his theory was that at a certain point in, in life, it's extremely hard to do anything different. And uh, I remember the title of the lecture was called uh, Sushi and the Brain. <laughs> what he did was uh, he did a, an informal survey of, of persons uh, and their, their sushi eating habits. And he found that if you hadn't eaten sushi by age, I forget the age, 35 or something, you're probably never going to try it in your life. So there's, there's a certain point in life where, you know, it becomes hardwired to, uh, it, it, it's much harder to do something different or new. So you've got to consciously realize that and actually force yourself to do something completely different once in a while to keep the brain active and, and, and keep those you know, neural fibers still firing because you'll get stuck in your ways and, and before you know it, you know, things will pass you by. So you know, the, same holds, the same holds for basically any field and even for things outside of your field. So. Um, you know, don't be afraid to try a new skill, to, uh, to visit somewhere completely different, um, you know, take a different route home or somewhere you've never been. You know, don't be afraid to get lost because you're challenging yourself constantly uh, if you do that. Yeah, exactly. And I guess for people who are afraid to try sushi or who are almost like old dogs who, can't, who don't want to learn new tricks, that kind of mindset, would you have any advice for them? Because I think innately it takes a curiosity to want to do these things or to grow. And so do you have any advice for how you can consistently stay hungry and consistently want to improve yourself? Yeah. So, so that, that is tough. Um, as, a, as a program director, one of the ways I try to um, uh, encourage residents is to, is to uh, you know, get that, that desire early on. Um, and uh, so one of the things is, is preparation. I tell them, make sure you read as much as possible during the downtimes, because you're not gonna have a lot of time to read while you're actually, you know, in the throes of, of practicing neurosurgery or learning to, to do the uh, technical stuff. So try to get as much background knowledge as possible. Um, and then, you know, approach each patient as a learning opportunity. So even if it's, it's you know, a lumbar disc, you know, look for you know, unusual presentations of very common diseases or uh, common presentations of unusual diseases. And um, that keeps you invigorated at nighttime when it's 3 a.m., you're getting the fifth admission. If you're always on the lookout for something unusual, then you're more likely to find it. And, uh, uh, and then um, I encourage residents to publish early. So there's nothing more rewarding than seeing your name in print and gaining a little bit of a knowledge about a tiny area. So, you know, in order to publish, even if it's a, if it's a case report, you've got to do a lot of research on that one tiny area, uh, everything that's been published in it before, you know, you've got to do the writing process. So it's, it's just a, 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 an endeavor that's very useful for the future because I'm always amazed that, you know, 
an article that I wrote as a resident, some very obscure thing. I, I always remember that. You always remember that um, that process and that knowledge. Uh, so it sticks with you, and that's beneficial later on. And you can also help the field by by getting it out there. Um, so you know, preparation is good. Um, I think uh, during the case, I mentioned just kind of. Uh, absorbing yourself in the case, even if you think it's the most boring case whatsoever. I mean, you, you've got to, you've got to re remember that something can go wrong. Figure out, you know, what to do if something goes wrong. Um, ask the attending, you know, if something goes wrong, what they would do. After the case, go over the steps in your mind. Make sure that you've, you, you've kind of compiled the individual steps so that you're more, you're more uh, uh, likely to uh, learn the, the stages of the procedure. You know, one one um, issue that a lot of residents have is they may they may know how to suture, or they may know how to, you know, core out the tumor, but you've got to be able to go from one stage to the other, and anticipate that stage before you need it. So, for instance, if you're doing a one stage of procedure, know that you're going to need the bipolar, you're going to need this certain suture, and ask for it so that the scrub nurse has that ready for you. You don't want to be you know, finished at one end and say, oh, well, where's so-and-so? Oh, well, you never told the nurse you needed it. How oh, she doesn't read your mind. So, so you've got to be constant. While you're working, you're actually thinking as well at the stage of the procedure. Um, and as a junior resident, obviously, you don't know the stages, but that but you can learn by watching, um, a lot by watching, actually. Um, so once you've gotten a point where you've, you, you kind of know what to do, then you've got to practice. And I say practice, it's hard, you're not necessarily practicing on a patient, but that's when you go to the lab. Um, one of the reasons I ended up in vascular is that during my research year, I had 10 uh, cadaver heads. So basically 20 uh, uh, halves. And um, ended up devising a lot of um, you know, different uh, uh, papers by just exploring some area of the brain that I thought hadn't been well uh, explored or some area that I wanted to, to, to learn better. So. You know, that's when I really became fascinated with the, the in, intricate branching uh, uh, anatomy of the vascular system. And, and, and I think that kind of veered me towards vascular neurosurgery, not, not only because of the, you know, the technical expertise, but because of the, uh, the, the, the anatomy that, that's required. Um, uh, so, yeah, if, if, you, if you do those steps and then obviously, um, uh, you know, get the, get the man hours in. Uh, you've probably heard about um, again Gladwell's theory on the, the you know the thousand hours. I mean, a lot of people have actually talked about it, but it actually works. Uh, I mean, I think there's some truth to it because uh, you know Bill Gates had uh, ten thousand hours of working in his garage, you know, programming before he became a master. Um, the Beatles, uh, when they were in Germany, they actually had ten thousand hours of playing before they kind of you know became uh, adept. And if you add up, if you assume a five-hour workday in terms of actually, you know, operating or in the operating world, and not not counting the, you know, the scut work, um, and you and you assume two hours of, uh, I'm sorry, two weeks of vacation, you actually need six and a half years to get ten thousand work hours in your surgery. So that works out to about the seven-year uh, period. So I think, you know, it, it's something that you just got to do. Um, and I, I noticed that the residents who are in there day in and day out, just kind of, even if it's the simplest case, um, uh, that's how you get better. Um, when I was a resident, uh, uh, myself and, and, and the other chief, we would actually uh, 
you know, once we realize that, yeah, we have the, we have the technique down for doing a simple discectomy, but there's always something more you can learn, all right? So even if you know the steps, your next step is to, well, how quickly can you do a discectomy without getting a dural tear? <laughs> or, you know, how, how, uh, how quickly can you actually sew, you know, sew up? So there was always something, always a goal to, to be had. And, uh, and that makes it fun if you realize that, um, you know, you don't know everything. I mean, you may feel like you, you've got that, that uh, uh, technique down, but there's always something more you can do with it to get better. And with that, with that mindset, I think um, uh, you'll, you'll become the, the best possible practitioner that you can. So uh, colloquially, people make remarks all the time like, this isn't neurosurgery, and it has a very high, um, it's associated with a high degree of academic achievement. So what do you personally think about that? And have you noticed uh, other people thinking about that in a certain way or anything? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a certain allure about, you know, neurosurgeons, um, you know, there, there's a, a prototypic neurosurgeon who is this kind of uh, driven, um, you know, very intelligent, uh, technically gifted person. And, and I think that's, uh, you know, to a large extent that is true, but those things are true of every field, if you think about it, right? I mean, you, you, um, there are other surgical uh, subspecialty areas where you've got to be technically gifted. You've got, you've got to be able to, to get the operation done quickly and efficiently. Um, I think the thing with neurosurgery, probably one of the reasons why it has this as a lure, because uh, it is challenging to get to that point. You know, the steps to become a neurosurgeon are steps along the way. So in addition to, you know, um, uh, you know getting good grades or, or uh, um, uh, performing well in the rotations, uh, you've got to do well on the, uh, uh, you know, the standardized tests. You've got to uh, be able to communicate well with patients, with uh, colleagues, both fellow residents above and below you with attendings. So um, I, I think the best neurosurgeons are, are the ones who also have that kind of human touch. And, um, you know, so although there's that allure, at the end of the day, it's, it's a job. In fact, one of my, uh, one of my mentors when I was a resident said, at the end of the day, remember, neurosurgery is just a job. So you just got to do it to the best of your ability and, uh, and have some humility because, you know, you're working hard, but, um, but uh, a lot of it is that grit that we mentioned before. Um, so it's a combination of having the intellectual capacity, which, again, a lot of fields, you need that. But it's that combined with that ability to, to pick yourself up after a, you know, a complication. Um, to to stand up for ten hours doing a you know acoustic neuroma, um, to uh, persist in a in a difficult case to to get the best possible outcome, um, and and that builds on itself. If if you can force yourself to do that, it becomes al almost like second nature, and 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 you realize that yeah you've got what it takes to to do the difficult surgeries, to do difficult tasks, uh, for the for the best outcome of the patient. So I don't know if that answers your question. Oh, it does. And we were talking about how neurosurgery is very technically gifted, but at the end of the day, you're saying it is just a job. And one of the things that you and I have discussed before is this concept of a healthy work-life balance. 
And we always say as medical students, they put a high emphasis on this nowadays. And then people always say that we should try to achieve this, but given the demands of medical school, residency, a practicing physician, it's very difficult to constantly remind yourself to practice this healthy work-life balance. However, you have achieved this uh, to some degree by being a loving father, by being an author, by playwright, and on top of all this, being a neurosurgeon. So how have you achieved this uh, delicate work-life balance? Yeah. Well, I, I think it's actually a, a necessity if you're going to be a, a well-rounded person. I mean, I think we all know of neurosurgeons who uh, are so intense. Oh, and it's an intense field. You've got to be intense when you're working. But that's also a good recipe for burning out. So as a resident, I realized early on that, uh, and, and this was not you know, me just becoming self-aware. I had some good advice from, from mentors. I mean, I remember when I did an interview with one um, one of the uh, uh, internship programs, uh, I don't remember who it is, but he said, you know, make sure that during your internship year, you read a novel at least once every two months or so. Something, do something completely different. Well, it was hard to read during, you know, neurosurgery, but I, I kind of adapted that. And I, during my first, uh, uh, well, that wasn't the first one, it was, I think, the third uh, clinical rotation. Um, it was the emergency uh, medicine rotation. It was um, 12 hours on, 12 hours off for a good you know, month. And after a while, the days and nights became completely blurred. I mean, you just felt like you were there day in and day out. I, re I realized I was dreaming about patients. And so my remedy was after my shift, I would actually go to the $1.50 movie theater and watch a movie. <laughs> and so get my mind completely off medicine. And that just generated, you know, fodder for my dreams. And I, believe me, I felt I slept better. I was much better refreshed getting up and, you know, getting to the next shift the next, uh, the next day or the next 12-hour shift. So you've got to be able to shut off and do something completely different to relax. And that means different things to different people. To some people, it might mean going to a movie. To others, it might mean, you know, going for a bike ride, going for a swim, um, uh, you know, spending time with family. So you've got to be able to kind of shut off because so much of our field is not conducive to that. You know, we do a difficult case, we come home, we're worried about the post-op here. You know, we're getting called. We're, we're, you know, we're always at work, even though we're not on call, basically, in neurosurgery. So you've got to be able to kind of uh, consciously be able to uh, shut off and just kind of um, uh, take some time and, and relax. So, and, you know, by the same token, I think that um, one of my favorite, uh, well, not favorite, one, one of the things that always comes to the residence is to, to, uh, to always make sure they cultivate a hobby during their career because it's such an all-consuming field that uh, by the end of the career, if you don't have anything else to fall back on, then you're stuck. And, and I've saw so many examples of very respected neurosurgeons, top of the field, who at the end of the day, the careers ended, and that's all they have. So they're like hanging on to their life, that there's nothing else. And that's sad, you know? I mean, life is meant to be lived. So, you, you, you know, the top of your field in neurosurgery, you know, find something else. So, so it's, it's, it's your benefit to cultivate hobbies that you can really be passionate about throughout your career that you can seamlessly transition to that, uh, you know, hobby or you know, it could be a starting a business, writing a book, uh, um, you know, traveling to Europe with family, you know, going to chef school. I mean, there are so many examples of, of neurosurgeons finding something that they're really passionate about and being happy doing it. So that's essential.
Is there any one story that you think uh, sticks out or anything that you think uh, that, you know, anybody could learn from? Yeah, well, in terms of, of just, uh, you know, patient experience or patient care, um, one of the more uh, important ones, I think, was uh, a patient I had who was um, a neonate. So she was literally born a week into her birth, her heart started to fail. And she was diagnosed with uh, a problem called a vein of galen malformation. Um, it's a very complex vascular problem where there's a, 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 um, a, a channel called the median prosencephalic vein that it's supposed to involute uh, as, you, as you age in utero. It basically just shrivels up. But in some patients, it doesn't. And it acts as an abnormal connection between the arterial system and the venous system. Um, it's called vein again, and that's actually a, a misnomer. But what happens is that with each heartbeat, the blood goes up to the brain and then is shunted across this connection and then back down to the heart. So you end up with this vicious cycle. And so the, the, the poor baby, uh, the organs start to fail with time because the brain isn't getting blood, the, 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 the liver, the, all the organs in the, in the body are kind of literally failing. So, um, and, and, and so those are some of the more difficult cases to deal with. I've actually had a few in my career. One was a twin that, uh, that we were able to, to treat, and, and she, she did well. But this was the youngest I've done. It was literally a month old. We like to wait until the baby's old enough to tolerate the procedure. But at two weeks old, her liver enzymes started to go up. And so uh, we realized that you know, she was going to die. So um, we took her to the angio suite, um, and you can imagine a femoral artery at two weeks, and it's literally a, a strain. So we were able to get into catheter, and the way we treat this is to try to pack as many coils as possible into that sac. So we went to our tr transarterial, uh, uh, packed the sac off, and you, you don't want to do it, you want to be very careful, so there's a lot of judgment here, because if you that was going into this big channel is now diverted into the normal vessels that haven't seen that blood flow in the child's entire life. And so the normal protective me mechanisms haven't developed. And what can happen is that the brain can literally uh, explode. I mean, you can have uh, uh, bleeding, edema, and um, literally a disaster in your hands. So I call it as much as I felt safely that we can do. And then we brought it back for a second stage uh, uh, where we went transvenous and we coiled. Uh, I think actually we went transvenous first and then transarterial. And then I went transarterial for a third stage uh, to uh, actually use glue for some of the, the smaller pedicles that we couldn't uh, adequately treat. Mm -hmm. She stabilized for about a week, but then she started to deteriorate again. And at that point, um, you know, the, the, the intensivists were talking uh, about taking her to hospice and, 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 and basically just laying the groundwork for, for the kid dying. And I said, you know, um, she's going to die. Let's just try one last time. So I went back and we, we basically shut the, and, and, and the fear again is that you can actually do harm by trying to treat the patient. But I kept packing and packing as many coils. And then at one point, her blood pressure dropped precipitously. And I said, okay, we're done. <laughs> so um, at the end of that, she started to improve. By three months after, she was a normal kid. I mean, she left the hospital at three months, uh, a normal, healthy kid. 
with nothing to suggest that she had this horrible problem. And so, you know, uh, by all criteria, there's a bisectory scale that we use for these vanity and malformations. And her score would suggest that you should just let her die because it was such a bad situation. But the fact that, you know, we were able to pull her through and um, uh, she was actually featured uh, in a few magazines and the, the coil company users, their poster child. But that's one example of persevering, um, thinking things through, you know, reviewing the literature and, and, and kind of thinking a creative way to fix a problem and, and just getting it done. So that, that sticks out in memory because um, it was very humbling knowing that, you know, that kid could die, but, uh, but just by persisting, we were able to, to save a life and, um, and get it. Wow, that's really inspirational. And just the lesson of always persevering no matter what and trying to do the best thing for the patient. We really appreciate you coming and joining us today. Is there any last words of advice or any pearls of wisdom you'd like to leave our audience members with? Uh, well, you know, with respect to neurosurgery and neurosurgical training, um, it's, a, it's a long road. Uh, try to have fun along the way. Um, always remember you're there to pe treat a patient. And if you treat patients like your own family member, I think you'll never go wrong. Um, but you've got to have that internal drive to keep innovating, um, keep persisting. Uh, that makes the journey uh, much more enjoyable. And uh, always remember to relax and have fun with family. And, and again, just find something different to do that's just maybe just as challenging. I mean, as you know, a lot of neurosurgeons end up climbing mountains and doing crazy stuff. But you, you've got to do something different to kind of recharge something that you truly enjoy doing. Um, but it's, it's really a privilege for us in our field to be able to be in a position to help so many people with, with terrible diseases, but um, we've always got to remain humble and realize that you know, we're entrusted with this, with this uh, great responsibility and never veer from, from that uh, lesson. All right, well, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Aleph. We've really learned a lot. Sure, this was fun.